Hey, this is Kyle Hagee, producer of the podcast, and on today's episode, we're actually replaying one of our favorite episodes from season one, and that's an interview with Peter Gunder and Ryan Rist of American Family Insurance. Season three will start next week, September 2nd, and we kick off with an amazing interview with John Coyle, Olympic silver medalist, design thinking expert, and author. It's a really fascinating look at designing for your strengths, the different type of thinkers you need on your team, and how your smallest actions can lead to incredible impact. Enjoy this episode, and we'll see you next week. From Innovation Alley at Marquette University, I'm Chuck Swoboda, and this is Innovators on Tap, a show based on the idea that innovation is about leadership. It's a mindset to find a better way And ultimately, it's about people. These conversations are designed to allow you to open your mind to new ideas and find ways to put those concepts to work. Together, we can solve big problems and maybe even change the world. What's the first industry that comes to mind when you hear the word innovation? What's the second industry that comes to mind? How about the third? My guess is that the insurance industry did not make your top three. But I think you may change your mind after you listen to today's episode. I talk with Peter Gunder, Chief Business Development Officer, and Ryan Rist, Director of Innovation, on the genesis of American Family Insurance's deep dive into innovation, including relocating part of their team away from headquarters to focus on innovation, creating a world-class venture capital business, acquiring new technology and business expertise through acquisitions, as well as developing innovation internally. They are dealing with the tension that exists in legacy companies. On one hand, the core business drives near-term success. But at the same time, the things that make you successful today are often the exact same things that get in the way of innovation. As Ryan said during our conversation, You have to anchor yourself in the transformational side of things in the long term, but you don't get unlimited rope. Every year we need to be showing up with value. Our discussion gets to the core of innovating as a large enterprise. Peter and Ryan provide some incredible insights, including the necessity of leadership to fundamentally drive innovation, the need to view their competitors, not as other legacy companies, but as the up and coming startups, and how customer expectations are often set outside your own industry. Please note that this podcast was recorded in American Family Spark Building in Madison, Wisconsin. That's what's on tap today. Enjoy. All right, Peter and Ryan, thanks for joining me today on Innovators on Tap. Happy to be here. So, Peter, I want to start with you. How does an engineer turned investment officer end up working for an insurance company and then you build a venture fund and an innovation center. I was very restless working for a large energy company right out of business school. So I quit at age 27 and took early retirement. And my dad told me I was crazy. And my roommate's dad was starting an insurance company. And it looked like a wild adventure that I wanted to be on at age 27. So that's the beginning of my story. Are there experiences from how you grew up? that you think kind of shaped who you are and some of your core beliefs? 
Yeah. The one that most immediately comes to mind is um, I have only one brother. We were both active Boy Scouts and ultimately were Eagle Scouts. So we spent a lot of time outside trying new stuff. We grew up in Southern California and you're always outside. And we did a lot of stuff we didn't tell our parents about, but we enjoyed new adventures driving to the Grand Canyon and doing rim to rim to rim and calling our parents from Arizona to say, uh, we decided to go hiking. Uh, we just want to let you know where we are. So, so they didn't know you were in Arizona? Uh, not till we called them because <laughs> we figured they'd say no. So Ryan, how did you end up becoming the director of innovation at American Family? Well, I've been with the company um, coming up on 18 years and Friend of mine and business partner of mine, Dan Reed, said, you got to talk to this guy, Peter Gunder, who was recently brought in um, making waves. And I was I was sort of looking outside the company. I'd been with the company a while and had a chance to interact with Peter and was sold. Um, here was somebody who was visionary, bold, pushing the company, challenging me personally. And, uh, you know, I didn't really have a role with Peter. It was come and help. And then shortly after that, he asked me to take over the innovation team. So I know that at some point while you were working for American Family, you started a company that I believe in developed some software that helped you predict how to find where the fish are. What kind of motivated you to do that while you're working in an insurance company? And, and what did you take from that that you're using now? I think I was restless. I mean, I, the insurance industry, if you go back to 2000, 2002, you know, there's a lot of money. There was distribution. There was no need to really do things differently. And that's just not my M.O., I'm intellectually curious. I, I like to solve hard problems. And I think here was a space that I didn't feel like I was challenged. And so had an opportunity to solve a problem in another space and put my own money behind it and my own time behind it and made it happen. And I think the key thing there was that it, it opened up the possibility of building and creating new companies and the whole startup ecosystem that was, was sort of foreign to me. And once you go down that path and you see what's possible, it's very hard to to shift gears and go back. So for me, it was a huge moment in myself and building confidence and learning how the space worked and, and building that hunger to go do it again. So I read somewhere that the insurance business, and I think you just said this, was, was relatively the same for about 100 years or maybe a few hundred years. And then about 20 years ago, the industry went boom and it started to be disrupted by technology. It, I'm curious, is that a boom? Is that a, did one thing happen or was it a series of steps that started to change the business? My opinion is that it's not just insurance. I think that insurance was maybe has been particularly hard hit because of the regulated nature, because of th that it has been the same way for a long time, because of its inherent use of data and technology. I think it's been particularly hard hit, but I think it's hit every industry the last 20 years. And so I don't think it's specific to us, in my opinion. And it's driven to me by technology. And what we're seeing is the exponential growth of technology. We're seeing convergence of things like cloud computing, with microprocessors, with artificial intelligence. And that acceleration is what's making the possible, the impossible now possible, which then changes consumer minds. So now they expect more because they can get more. And that's hitting everybody. And that's just my opinion. Yeah, look, um, Ryan hit on it. Cloud computing, open source software, and ubiquitous mobile devices. I remember this date because it's my brother's birthday, June 29th. Uh, but June 29th, 2007 was the first iPhone released. Um, you can do a lot of new things when you're holding a powerful supercomputer in your pocket. Insurance is a digital business. It was ripe for disruption, and we're seeing that. Last quarter, 
fourth quarter 2019, $2 billion went into, quote, insure tech early stage venture. That's a big number by anybody's calculation for a single quarter. So there's a mantra at American Family of innovator die. And I'm curious, when did this idea first start to gain traction? What was the catalyst? Well, I'm going to say that there is a um, subset of the broader universe that chants that mantra on a regular basis, but I will credit our CEO, Jack Salzwedel. He ascended to being chair and CEO in uh, November of 2011, and he is our champion. There's lots of evidence across companies all across the world that um, have stagnated and failed to reinvent themselves. So I, I credit our CEO and then People like Ryan and I are uh, willing to go try stuff and don't worry too much about uh, whether we make mistakes because failure is learning. I, I've heard Jack say that uh, a couple couple places. And we still get internal partners, stakeholders ask us, well, why would you invest in a company that's disruptive to our business model? And, and Jack has said, we, we really only have two options. You can sit back and watch or you can participate and be a part of it because that company is going to be there with or without us. I know that you've switched your business over the years. At one time, I believe it was very heavily focused on the automotive insurance business, and now it's really expanded. What led to the shift? Yeah, so um, we have been a multi-line insurer. That's our jargon for multiple different products. And we still are very much one of the leading private passenger auto insurers in the United States. But I think there is a growing recognition that the inevitability of autonomous vehicles is um, is apparent. And as such, we have taken some deliberate steps to invest more heavily in our homeowners and renters business. Um, that's not to say that we don't like multi-product relationships with our customers, um, but we're definitely focusing on where the growth is and where the new opportunities are. I'm often asked, how do you start thinking about what innovation might look like? And you guys, what you've done is something that I, I often suggest to people, but rarely see it done, which is you've kind of thought about what does the world look like 10 or 20 years from now? And you had this honest assessment and you're kind of working backwards. Why do you think you've been able to kind of make that aha transition or at least let it affect your business and so many other companies and most traditional businesses just can't do it? Well, I think the jury's still out. We've done a lot of good things, but that's um, the game's not over. The game's never over, and we've got a long way to go, too. So I, I personally think, and I this is in your book, about how innovation can be overcomplicated. We can add a lot of hype and create a lot of frameworks. Um, I think when you boil it all down, it's about leadership. And you talk about Jack. I think what Jack did is realize that we have to make some change, and he brought in people like Peter that he empowered to then make that change. And Peter brought in other people that wanted to go take action. And we didn't have all the answers, but let's go take action and try things, experiment, get out in the market, do some deals. And all of those single steps open more doors than open more doors. So I think it's been a journey driven ultimately by leadership and we got a long way to go. You know, I was thinking about how does a what are the potential barriers? You guys have this 90-year-old successful business that could get in the way. And when you said leadership, it reminded me. So the very first premise when I wrote my book was that innovation is a leadership problem, not a management problem. And that what makes most companies successful 
is their management expertise. So if you're going to stay in business for 90 years, you have people that are exceptional at managing the business, coming up with what are the things that need to be managed, delivering a predictable result, hitting that objective and keep moving. But those are actually the opposite behaviors of what it actually looks like when you innovate. So I'm curious, how do you guys make that tension work in the company? Because I'm sure it's still well-managed, but you're trying to create this, I'll call leadership culture in parallel. How do you guys manage that tension? What are some of the issues you're facing? You're spot on. My synthesis is that successful legacy businesses seek to minimize variability and powerful innovators crave variability because there'll be a lot of losers and a few winners hiding in that set of experiments. Look, we just try a lot of stuff. There's physical separation between our building where Ryan's team and our venture team are housed. We decided to put the building just a few miles away from our national headquarters and not all the way across the country in Mountain View, California or Cupertino because we wanted to have learnings and we wanted to be proximate but not too close. You can do experiments, you can fail and not suffer um, cultural ridicule if you do it in a contained uh, and thoughtful way. But look, we're not out of the woods. Um, we've got deconstruction and reconstruction to do at our business like many, many firms. And the best in human nature doesn't always come out when you're trying to stop doing things and do new things. So we're, we're going to continue to learn. All I know is we're going to keep trying. So how do you deal with some of those challenges? You know, one of the things that I observe is it, on average, most people generally don't like change. Change brings in a fear of an unknown. It, they might not be good at the new thing and they're generally resistant to it. How do you try to make that idea work in your business today? Because I would imagine that you're seeing this tension on a regular basis. Our teams, our innovation teams and our venture teams have um, taken a teaching mindset. So we built a program called Venture Fellows, where we invite curious partners from all across our enterprise to come and learn about venture capital. Venture capital being a metaphor for investing in you know nascent businesses with high growth potential. So if you take a teaching mindset as opposed to a forceful and derogatory mindset, I think we can get we can get farther. So I think we've done that. I think Peter also had the premonition, the insight when setting up this entire group was to recognize that you have to anchor yourself in the transformational side of things in the long term, but you don't get unlimited rope. And so we would always talk about while we're trying to place these seven, 10 year bets, how do we provide near term value? How do we every year we need to be showing up with value and that value has manifested in different ways. We, you know, it's been upskilling the workforce and things like lean startup design thinking. It's been training internal partners on the venture world. It's been presenting opportunities to core leaders for new partners, but that has to be on your mind because you don't get, uh, you have to prove your value. And ultimately the business of transformation takes time. And that's the crux of the tension, I think, is you have a core business and people in that business trying to create near-term wins. And yet you're also trying to keep your eye towards the future in the next 10 years. And that's, that's the heart of it. Incentives how do you create teams that actually are working together, not competing? You know, in the early years, we were we were too focused on core innovation, 
And guess what? There's a whole bunch of people also working on that. So then you create an us versus them environment. You've got a problem that you can't quantify the innovation team's value because you can't attribute how much they were responsible for it. So I think it's a you're, you're spot on. It's a continual thing. The game's never over. I, I think of it as are we putting up points every year and the game never ends. You talked about you've learned how to create value along the way. And so much of what happens in, in the management framework, they're metric-driven organizations, right? Yep. And so essentially, if you're creating value along the way, what it sounds to me like is it wasn't on the metrics to start with, but once you discovered it, people learn to appreciate it. But that seems like a pretty hard dynamic to make work because someone may have signed up for an annual goal at the beginning of the year, and that wasn't on there when you don't get rewarded for it. So how do you guys manage that tension of you're actually coming up with value creation that wasn't on the list? We are fortunate we have a fair amount of autonomy, um, but we also have to answer the question, what have you done for me lately? Brian and I understand what an income statement and a balance sheet are. We understand the incremental value to the enterprise. If we can create $10 million, $15 million, $100 million in value, most people will understand that that's a contribution. Our data science and analytics team back in 2015 was able to do that. They found um, a novel application of what's called natural language processing, a machine learning technique to identify certain claims that were hidden in multiple databases across the enterprise, and they were able to identify them and submit them for reimbursement, if you will, to other insurance companies, what we call reinsurance. So that turned out to be a $125 million number dropped right to the bottom line. And that gets people's attention. It also gives us some confidence that we have some new capabilities. So then we look for, hey, how can we apply that elsewhere and rinse and repeat? Yeah, a couple of victories helps a lot along the way. You guys are doing amazing work inside, but if you weren't inside, is there a boundary condition that you face being the legacy company trying to innovate that if you were literally sitting across the street at your own startup trying to get in this business, is there is there one big thing that you don't know how to get around today, but the moment you walked out the door and went to a startup, you could? I look at it as trade-offs, right? American Family has a, a, an amazing brand, a lot of capital, a lot of customers, right? And th those are exactly the things that a startup tries to go obtain, right? And of course, the startup has no risk. It has no brand. It has no process. There, there are no people trying to sue them because they have a lot of money. Uh, it's a very different world. And I think what we've tried to do is balance that. How do you take the speed and nimbleness and flexibility of a startup and the power of an enterprise that's not easy. Those two things are inherently at odds. And I think there's been a lot of things that Peter and the leadership team have done to create the environment where we can start to get the best of both of those. It's never going to be perfect. You never can move as fast as a true startup because we do still have reputational risk. We have things that we have to consider and be wary and mindful of. But I, I haven't seen many environments where we've got, where we've tapped into both of those like we have under Peter's leadership. So one of the things when we were a small company competing against the big lighting guys like GE and Osram Sylvania and Philips was we knew they had orders of magnitude more money and resources than we did and, and experience. But because we didn't have any of that, it actually allowed us, it freed us to do things that we just wouldn't, you would never imagine doing otherwise. And it was because it was either that 
or we didn't have jobs, right? And so I wonder, do you ever wonder that the balance that you're trying to find actually limits your creativity? In other words, while those good things, and I totally agree, there are great things being a part of this well-resourced company, that almost if if people knew they were getting fired if they didn't figure it out or they weren't going to make their mortgage payment, do you think you could create a different dynamic? Probably. You know, um, having started a company back in 2001 uh, and dipping into my family's savings to start the company and having to answer the question from my wife, are you sure you know what you're doing here? There's a a focusing and a intensity around startup culture. But I'm going to, I support what Ryan said. I think that um, we've got folks that understand the startup mentality, and they also understand that this is a cultural change for a large organization, and you've got to be willing to invest over the long haul. So to me, it's a balance. Um, I'm not of the view that startups are going to put the insurance industry out of business. For example, 15, 20 years ago, the fintech startup said, we're going to take on um, JP Morgan and we'll be the next JP Morgan. And uh, fast forward 10 years, they're you know asking to partner in some narrow way with these giants. I absolutely believe that startups are going to partner with adaptive legacy carriers. And so having the ambidextrous capacity to be in the startup world and the legacy world, it's that cultural learning from startup into legacy. But also, there's a lot of good things about these legacy businesses. We're capably regulated. Those are important protections for society. One of the ways I would describe insurance is it's basically you're in the business of helping people manage risk. That's what you do. And yet, Innovation is typically about taking risk. Yeah. So uh, managing risk doesn't imply um, reducing risk. There's one way to look at it. There's a price for any risk, meaning you can take extreme risks as long as you're getting paid for it. So I think that we've got a large quantity of leaders that understand that you can have bets along a full continuum of risk, not necessarily be the most conservative. Because conservatism and low levels of risk likely come with lower margins. Just to add to that too, a lot of people, I've heard that in a couple different flavors that, well, insurance is all about risk. How how do you actually do anything new? Insurance is also about investment. You know, a big portion of an insurance company's bottom line profit will come from their investment portfolio. And I I think one of the things that, that, that there's many things that make Peter unique and special and, and a driver of all this, but his mentality as an investor and the understanding of a por- portfolio theory, and we have to place lots of small bets, is deeply ingrained in a part of insurance that I think allows a company like us to maybe place some bets if, as long as they're contained, uncorrelated, we're not betting the farm. And I think that's how Amphan Ventures and a lot of what we have now got started. So... What I've seen in looking at many other legacy companies is that while they start out with the best intentions, eventually the legacy kills the startups at some point. How are you managing that tension? Because I think that's the question that almost every legacy company is facing out there today. 
Well, look, there's no handbook to go to. I, we just have to be honest with ourselves that the world is changing very rapidly. Perhaps most importantly, customers' expectations are being set outside of our industry. And if we can't set standards for engagement with customers and value propositions that customers care about, we're uh, one mouse click away from losing a valuable customer. And as such, um, that's an imperative to continue to reinvent, um, to continue to challenge what we've been doing. Again, we get it. We don't know what the ultimate manifestation of autonomous vehicles is going to do to our business, but we've got a lot of people working really hard to make sure that we are highly relevant to customers going forward. So you guys have been going through an amazing transformation. And, you know, I mentioned this to you earlier, but I, w- I want to make sure it gets said on the interview that, you know, when I first came to visit you, I was trying to figure out innovation insurance company. I just couldn't get my head around it. it you know, th- I was in the business of disrupting other companies. I'm like, this sounds like good marketing. What's really there? And when I got here and I saw all the different things you were doing, I had this aha moment to realize, well, there, there really is something different. There is a transformation. And while it's not happened immediately, it's happening. And I know some of that is from your own internal innovations. Some of that is through your venture investments. Some of that's through some of the acquisitions you've made in companies that bring new technology in. I'm curious if you guys think about yourself from an innovation standpoint, is it something you're bringing in or is it really you're creating it yourself? I consider us to be an agnostic innovator in that what's the right tool for the job. There's a lot of companies that purely do M&A as their strategy to hedge the future. There's companies that have all internal. We have taken this build by partner approach and said, we're going to do all of it because they all have trade-offs with acquisitions. There's post-merger integration issues. There's market prices that are through the roof right now. When you try to build everything that's already trying to be built in Silicon Valley, you have to compete with the best of the best. So I think what Peter has done is assemble kind of a broad set of tools and there's no one right answer for every problem. Do you think you guys are better at innovating internally or bracing innovation externally and bringing it into the company? What's been most successful so far in terms of transforming your company? You know, it's hard to say. We can look at different attributes of our business. Um, I think our CEO recognized that distribution in insurance was changing. Um, We needed mobile and web fluency, and we made that happen through acquisitions. That's an external change moving into the company. And um, But we've got other examples of internal conceptions that have taken off. One thing I think, looking back, that was key to all of this, uh, in addition to leadership, was we, we rooted ourselves in the market through Ampham Ventures. We rooted ourselves in the startup world. And I think when you sit in your own walls and talk to each other, irrespective of the market, I think that's when you can get in trouble. The pace, the talent, the products that are coming out of the startup world change. They create a different, completely different mindset with which to anchor everything else in. Had we not started there, had Ampham Ventures not become a globally recognized uh, corporate venture capital team, I don't know if we would have had the same outcome. You know, I think that they that the creation of that success of that group fed a lot of other things that we did and from a mindset standpoint. Yeah, I'll add, we made one design decision that I think has proven to be useful, and that is not to everybody's liking. We uh, decided that we didn't need explicit permission for a transaction. That is, we would go out and find the world's best capabilities in a particular area, 
and that there were just a few of us that had the authority to go ahead and make those investments. And that if we could be a world-class venture firm, we would have market signals that would help us understand how to connect to the company. And had we made a different design decision to get buy-in and um, support and awareness, we never would have got a deal done. And we never would have built at the speed which we did. So um, I think that was an example of let's go outside in and then let's do the heavy lifting of helping us all move forward. The genesis of deciding to become good at venture. I know you are, but that how does that moment come about where someone says, yeah, we're going to like build a venture company inside of our Madison based insurance company. You need to spend more time with Peter. No. He makes really big, bold challenges like that all the time about being the best, about thinking differently, about transforming the, not just the company, but the industry. So the, the genesis was relatively straightforward. Um, I was recruited to be the chief investment officer of American Family. I had fluency with the venture asset class. Indeed, we were a limited partner in other venture funds since 1983. So we had a large portfolio of venture. And it was absolutely clear to me that we could build our own, start ultimately leading deals, finding other co-investors. And now here we are today where we actually have limited partners in our fund. And um, that is deepening and strengthening our capabilities. So it was a sort of an adaptation of my investment background. I know you guys have applied a lot of lean startup and design thinking principles. And you know I believe those are really valuable tools. But in my work, it really starts with mindset. And so how do you think about the role of people? Are you developing people's mindset or are you hiring for mindset? I think lean startup and design thinking, there's those are tools that we use to solve problems, but they also involve the drastic shift in the way you've done things and the way you think about solving problems. So they require you to go talk to your customer, which is not something every company does every day. It's surprising, right? But we would literally go out into Home Depot and find people in an alley and ask them about their home improvement projects. And we would do that over and over again um, instead of relying on a survey or a market report. And then you end up experimenting with customers. I, I love Jeff Bezos' comment about we measure Amazon's innovation and the number of experiments we run every day, week, month. So if you're not trying new things, you're never going to end up with anything that's good. So that that is a I think that is a mind shift. And and getting that into the organization and teaching everybody, I think, is the first step in that journey to then creating an engine and a culture that gets people where you need to go. It, it's a it's a first step in a long journey. But if you were going to bring someone new into the organization and you wanted to know what their likelihood of being good at this is, because my premise would say is some people are more naturally or for based on how they grew up or whatever their experiences are, their mindset is more open to risk taking and acting like Peter, for example, right? Doing some of these things. He said, let's not even bother to get consensus. Let's just go try it. Do you look specifically when you try to bring people on the team for this mindset today? Depends on the job. We have a duty and an obligation to work with our colleagues that are running the core business. And being the overt disruptor isn't a really um, pleasant and inviting engagement. 
So in that case, we're looking for people that can help illuminate, tease out ideas, and work on you know Im- improvements that have lower levels of risk. At the same time, additionally, we need people to make bold bets, um, and we need people that are more assertive with regard to trying new things. But we have to do it in a measured way. There is no goal here to eliminate the good, strong things that we've cultivated as a, a team and that has been built on the, the backs of other leaders. Um, so it's a trade-off. So matching the mindset for the task and the project. Exactly. Just gave it. So if you were going to take, I've been asked sometimes by companies that are in the legacy business that that want to do something pretty disruptive. And they've talked about how they tried to build a team and they tried it, but it didn't work. And so what I would always ask is, is who did you look for? And they typically said, we took the best people from the organization. And I said, you know, if you had a bell curve and then the center was the people that were the best at what you were doing, I'd look at the people on the two edges, either the really good ones that you think are going to quit because they're frustrated or the smart ones that are just such a pain to deal with. No one wants to be around them, but they're really smart. And I'd put them on the team. Does that make sense to you guys? Look, not everybody wants to swim in ambiguity and work 80-hour work weeks and solve super hard challenges. So I I think it's, it appears it's a trade-off, right? And I think in our line of business, that's the type of person we look for. And we've had a lot of mismatches on fit. We've had people come work with us and they well, well tell me how to do my job. And the answer is, okay, this isn't the right spot for you because we're, we're figuring that out every day. These are really hard challenges, a lot of ambiguity. But when you're dealing with a, a customer that's, that's lost their home in a fire, that's not the time. It's not appropriate to experiment and change things. So, so I think it is all about what, what work are we talking? American Family is a huge enterprise with uh, a lot of people in different functions. So I think the good thing is there's movement uh, and possibility for people to find that right fit. I have no doubt that I wouldn't want the group of innovators that I worked with at Cree to be managing many parts of your business today. As a customer, it would not work for me. But when you flip it around, what I find is is that there's a larger percentage of people that are comfortable in that environment than in this more disruptive environment. And so is there a question when you're sitting across the table from someone now that you've Hired people, some worked, some didn't. Is there a question either one of you kind of throw out that that's like your favorite way to try to see, is this person going to be good at the disruptive side of it? Yeah. So I ask people why they were put on this planet. And it's sufficiently open-ended that it tests whether they're introspective. It teases out the boldness um, in a person. And I like hanging out with people that know why they were put on this planet. Now, that's me. Uh, and but it, you know we only get one shot at changing the world. We only get one shot at making a difference with people we care about. And innovating is is hard. And I would say there are lots and lots of jobs that are hard. Running a big Fortune 300 company is really hard. It's just a different flavor of hard. Ryan, do you have a favorite question? I think it has something to do with intellectual curiosity. Not not a question, but I always ask people what their passions are, what their interests are, to Peter's point. What do they care about? Because when we can line up passion with work that needs to be done, that's when we see people at their best. And they're working those long weeks, not because we asked them to, because that's what they would be doing anyway. They, They care about figuring out hard, solving hard problems, intellectual curiosity. If you're wired for that, 
you're not going to fit well in the in the job that tells you exactly what to do, and you're more likely to, to fit with this kind of sort of stuff that we're doing. I think. So, Peter and Ryan, can you each describe your biggest failure? Sure, um, I'll describe it in the context of uh, an American family uh, venture investment that I uh, was passionate about. Some might say I bullied my colleagues to make a five million dollar bet on a very early stage company. And everything that could go wrong went wrong. And $5 million isn't a big number on a balance sheet of roughly $30 billion uh, in assets. But it's, um, it's important to recognize when things don't work out that, you know, I owned it. It was my issue. Do an after action review and realize that we should have scaled. That should have been a much smaller bet. And my own personal emotional attachment probably got the better of me. I've got too many of them to count. And I think one of the qualities of, a, of somebody leading this team is persistence and thick skin, because that's I've, I've failed over and over again. A lot of the failures, I think, have a similar quality in that I sometimes don't have patience to lead people to where I'm at, and, and I'll have a solution, and it's a great solution. But I've got a whole bunch of people that, that haven't spent the last year deeply thinking about it. And you have to get them there. And that requires patience and investment and time. When you're in this world that's moving really quickly, you want to go do. And when your bias is towards action, you want to, you want to go after the opportunity. And you see how quickly startups are moving. You want to act. In a big organization, you have to bring people along and sell it. And all of the failures, I think, have that, in my opinion, that flavor of what went wrong. You know, I, was, I got to go from $6 million to $1.6 billion with a lot of incredible people along the way. And what you just described is in the startup world, you just go do it and figure it out. And so you can act exactly that way. And I was there. And the hardest thing for me to learn when we tried to scale the company is because I wanted to stay. And most people would just say, that's not for me, is that my job became radically different. It was about building teams of people that could do these things, not could I do it. And it was the hardest thing. I would say even to the last day I was the CEO. I still struggle with it, but I could just go figure this out. And I think what so many of us miss is that startups exist because of people that are great at solving these problems, but they become successful companies because the scaling becomes about creating groups of people that can do these things on a totally different scale. And in the end, you actually have to bring in the talent that you may not have wanted as a startup, but it's absolutely required to run it. And so as much as I'm a fan of innovation and leadership, I learned a lot about management running a multi-billion dollar company and because it doesn't work without it. And so the one thing I want to make sure I leave you both with is I fully appreciate the benefit of these two skill sets. They're just different and they apply to different problems. I think what we're, the mistake we often make is we kind of put the square peg in the round hole and don't recognize what fits. So thank you guys for joining me today. I, I know it's a long journey you're on. And I know it's not there yet, but what you're doing is amazing from my perspective. And I thank you so much for taking the time today. Thank you for having us. And we've got a lot of colleagues that have made us look good. So I want to thank everybody who's uh, been on this journey with me and Ryan. This is a team sport, if there is one, uh, to this level. So yeah, thanks for having us. Thanks, guys. Really enjoyed it. Thanks to Peter and Ryan for joining me on Innovators on Tap and helping us go inside the efforts of a large legacy company seeking to embrace innovation. Peter's story about driving to the Grand Canyon as a teenager 
demonstrated an important lesson for young entrepreneurs. It's easier to ask for forgiveness than for permission. When innovating, waiting to get consensus typically is a death blow. Sometimes you have to just go for it and deal with the consequences. If you found value in this episode, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. And please share the podcast with your friends and colleagues, because I think we all know things that could use some innovative thinking. Please feel free to contact us through our website at www.innovatorsontap.com. We're always open to new ideas or critical feedback. My belief as an innovator is anything you do today can be done better tomorrow. Thanks for joining us on this journey. Let's go change the world.